0: Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and Uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hayden. Today we're going to be talking about some of the highest profile indie rock records that came out in October. We're going to be talking about Pine Grove, Kurt Vile, and Cat Power. And my guest is Stacy Anderson. She's a senior editor at Pitchfork. Uh, she was actually on the show about a year and a half ago when Pitchfork did their best Britpop albums list. And uh, I was lucky enough to be a voter in that, so... I asked Stacey to come on, and we talked about the list at that time, and I always thought she was a great guest. And I'm so glad that I was able to get her back to talk about these albums. Uh, I thought we had a really good conversation. Uh, especially, you know, we spent a lot of time actually talking about Pine Grove, that whole situation. Of course, they put out a record called Skylight that came out earlier this year. Uh, but there's a whole backstory, obviously, with that band and a controversy. And there hasn't been a whole lot of discussion about it. I mean, there's been some reviews of that record. Uh, but for the most part, the most notable, I think, reaction to that record has been the radio silence that has occurred. And I think that's because of the sort of discomfort that there is uh, related to the, uh, like guess, sexual coercion accusations that have been made against the lead singer of that band. Uh, so I wanted to get into it with Stacey, uh, who I know is a very thoughtful person, and I thought she would have some interesting things to say about that, and she did. So we talked about that, and then we just talked about Cat Power and Kurt Vile. And it was kind of fun just talking about them because there's no baggage there. <laughs> we could just enjoy talking about those two legacy artists and, and what we like about their latest records. So without further ado, why don't we get into it? This is me and Stacey Anderson talking about some of the biggest indie rock records that came out this month. So Stacey, I'm glad to have you back. I think the last time you were on was maybe like a year and a half ago. Was that like when you guys yeah. did, did the Britpop list? That-
1: yeah. Thanks for having me back, Stephen. I believe when I was on your show before, it was to talk about why unimpeachably Radiohead is Britpop, yeah, we were talking about a list we did.
0: <laughs> right. That was, yeah, that was like the spring of 17, right?
1: I think so. I think we were all younger and warmer yeah. at that time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of things that have happened since then, I feel like, in the world. you know. I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't, I don't,
1: <laughs> really? I hadn't noticed. What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just
0: glad that we, you know, it's like, I wish we could go back to the spring of 2017 and say, hey you guys are going to be talking again in October of 2018, like there will still be a world with podcasts where you two can still talk. So, you know, we, I think that would be good for us to hear back in you know, the spring of 2017. <laughs> That's a fair
1: point. Yeah, take the light where you can find it, you know?
0: <laughs> so, let's begin by talking about Pine Grove. Uh, sure. Their, their record came out in early October, their record Skylight, and There's a lot of things I want to get into about this record. There's there's the album and and there's the backstory, but for those people who maybe aren't familiar, let me give a brief background on this band. They're from Montclair, New Jersey. They formed in 2010. If you've heard of them, it's likely that the first record you heard was their 2016 record, Cardinal, which was a big critical hit. It was a record that seemed to have A pretty strong following, first in the emo community, and then it was one of the rare records that sort of crossed over from that and into the sort of the broader indie rock audience. Uh, Pine Grove actually played at the Pitchfork Music Festival. I believe that was in 2017. Do you know?
1: Um, It was this year, I believe.
0: Oh, no, yeah, it would have been 2016, that summer. So they played that year and they seem to have this look about them that this is the indie band to watch, like their next record is going to be a big one. And then in 2017 uh, something happens where the frontman of that band, Evan Stevens Hall, he makes a post on on, on Facebook where he talks about how he's been accused of of sexual coercion by a woman he had been in a relationship with and basically he decided in accordance with the victim's wishes that he wasn't going to put out the next record right away, th- this record Skylight, they decided to cancel a Pine Grove tour, and the ba- the band basically went on hiatus for about a year. Uh, flash okay. forward mm-hmm. to this fall, Pitchfork, you guys in a story, uh, a story by Jen Pelly, uh, talking to Evan Stevens Hall about everything that's happened, and also announcing that this record is finally going to come out, which it does uh, in the earlier part of this month. And, um, you know, I've been listening to the record for the past couple weeks. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's funny cause I think it's a really good record. Actually. I, I was a fan of Cardinal people who listen to this podcast. You may remember that Evan Stevens Hall was actually an early guest on this show. I think he was on in like the spring of 2016 on the same episode, uh, that Will Toledo was on of car seat headrest, uh, was on that episode. Um, This record is a little bit more alt-country-ish than the last record, uh, but there's a lot of good songs on it. It's a very tuneful record. You can imagine in an alternate universe, maybe, where this might be one of the big indie rock records of the year. Uh, But of course, we don't live in an alternate universe. We live in this one. And it seems as though this record has already disappeared. Uh, I know Pitchfork reviewed it. The site that I work for, UpRocks.com, reviewed it. There were a couple other reviews, maybe at, you know, major websites. But for the most part, uh, this record was self-released on Bandcamp, and then it sort of disappeared after that. And there seems to be... I don't know if, if discomfort is the word, or confusion, or what it is. Like People aren't sure, I think, how to talk about this record, because there's still a lot of mystery as to what exactly happened behind the scenes and I know Jen Pelly was trying to get to the bottom of that in her story. Um, I guess I'm curious, I mean this is a long preamble here, I'm curious like what you think of the record and then maybe more importantly what is your take on this story and how exactly in the, the way that I gets that's impacted the way we talk about this because I think you can apply this to Pine Grove but there's also something much broader here going on that reflects kind of a larger conversation going on in the culture. So I'm going to lay that all at your feet here, <laughs> if you just want to address any of that stuff. What do you think of this record and, and what do you think about, how do like what are we supposed to make of all this with Pine Grove?
1: Um, yeah, I can say up front that I did enjoy their previous work to a degree. I would never really have called myself a, a huge fan of the band. I remember even when Pine Grove did play our festival, which was in 2017. Um I was surprised by like the fervency of their their fans. they really are or were maybe more accurately just a the cult nexus of, of of so many passions um and I think that definitely shades how I get into this record and how I first listened to it as someone who never had a sort of like love for the band to begin with. I cannot divorce it from the narrative that has been presented to me probably even louder than than their music in the past so I do think it has a lot of really interesting and a lot of really beautiful moments. It, it definitely skews more alt country than, than the predecessor. I think just on a personal level, I can't listen to it without maybe like extrapolating like the narrative of today to this record, even though the record was by their accounts created well over a year ago and then shelved. I can't hear the past on this record without immediately slotting it into the present, if that makes sense.
0: Right, absolutely. There
1: are there are beautiful moments on it for sure. I especially really love the the last track, um, "Light On." It has pedal steel. It has even Steven Tall, Evan Stephen excuse me, saying that I want to do much better, pleading that, and I I am hearing that in the context of the present and still appreciating that song. But it is a very difficult narrative around this band now, and I think one of the things that Jen's story did so well was that captured sort of the whiplash of being a fan of this band a year ago versus a month ago. She first started to report this story in Update New York where they were living recording the album in twenty seventeen when it was, you know, seeming pretty obvious that Piper's next record was going to be the one that just like shoved them into like a whole new stratosphere of success. I mean, they were this was maybe going to be the indie record of the year, I think as you mentioned. And now There's quite a haze of confusion and apprehension around it. To some extent, we do need to be careful how we're shading our listening of this record. But to some extent, you just have to reasonably, as a music fan, know that you can't. And I think it's definitely affected the release and the reception of this record. I mean, it definitely has for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things for me and one of the challenging things for me about this record is that you know, we are in this moment where we're hearing about accusations against well-known artists. And in many cases, that has affected how we in the audience have chosen to regard those artists. And You know, an obvious example of that would be someone like R. Kelly, who has had numerous people step forward and talk about, you know, him acting in an abusive manner. Uh though the thing with R. Kelly is that it's extremely well-documented what he's been accused of. You know, the, mm-hmm. the stories have been very detailed, and we know just the full extent of the awfulness that has existed in his personal life. With this Pine Grove story, even with Jen's story, which I think was, was well done, there's still a lot that's opaque about what exactly happened and what he's been accused of. And sure. what's interesting about it is that this isn't a, a matter of, you know, the accused sort of denying what happened and fighting against it. I mean, Pinegrove, I guess, in Evan Hall specifically, he took himself out of commission. He, he mm-hmm. decided himself that, well, this accusation came up, and I am not going to put out the record, and I'm not going to tour for a while. And it was unclear, I remember, at the time when this news broke— If maybe he was being preemptive with that, if this was going, you know, that he was trying to sort of get ahead of the story before like a lot more details came out, or if this was actually sort of an act of contrition on his part. And it's still, I think, unclear about what the story is there. I mean, from reading Jen's story and all the other things that I've seen about it, my conclusion is that perhaps it would have been best that this hadn't been made public. That there was this third party involved, the 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 person from Punk Talks who, sort of made it a public story or sort of helped push it out into the public sphere. I mean, it seems like something that maybe should have been worked out between the people directly involved and not publicized, uh, because it seems as though the accuser doesn't want it, didn't maybe want it to be public, and you know, maybe Hall is trying to preserve the privacy there. I don't know. I mean, it, it's very difficult to parse, and I feel like as an audience, because this was made public, there is an obligation as a listener to try to parse this, even though we don't really have a lot of information. I mean, does that make sense? Right, and I
1: I agree how difficult it is to do so. It seems like there were several players and several moving parts and in what initially, you know, was a relationship that only two people could know about, and then it is alarming what... Has been, you know, co- what has been accused of happening in that relationship. I think the real, the real discussion and the real reason maybe it wasn't even that surprising that Evan came forward himself, broke the news himself, maybe preempted, which it, it seems entirely possible, is because um, his behavior and Pine Grove at large being part of this uh, possible uh, manipulation, and sexual coercion is that Pine Grove is always a band that had such a strong presence and such voluble support in being progressive and being very much um, supporters of those who've been marginalized and abused. So his behavior directly contradicting that felt like a betrayal to fans. And the actions of someone who very clearly had given a lot of thought to this and clearly knew better, I mean, not the most seamless example. But when this first happened, I thought of, uh, which I think this didn't happen after it, right? I thought of Louis CK or I think of them together in my mind now because Louis CK was someone who had such like empathetic and thoughtful discussions of consent and male, um, sexual coercion on his show. He clearly knew better. And then he still went and preyed on women in his personal life. So it kind of was like just the absolute shattering of, 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 a creative, and professional guys, I guess, between how this person apparently conducted their personal life.
0: You know, I want to talk about, I guess, how we, you know, as music critics and as music listeners react to this sort of thing, because as far as what happened, I don't know if we'll ever know. I mean, from reading Jen's story, as far as I can tell, the issue deals with, Evan and the accuser being involved, with, like, where the accuser had a boyfriend, maybe, and like she cheated on him, and Evan was involved in sort of persuading her about that? Am, am I reading that right? I mean, that, that seemed to be the gist of that.
1: My read was that the manipulation was not physical, but it was verbal and it was behavioral. So that was my read of Jen's story as well.
0: I mean... And, and that's another thing. And I mean, it's been interesting talking with other music critics about this because, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but like, I've talked to other writers who have been reluctant to talk about this album because they feel as though they don't have all the information. And I would put myself in this camp as well, because we're sort of in a position right now where if you defend Pine Grove, there's still the possibility that something else could come out that could really be incriminating or, or just a terrible accusation. But if you condemn Pine Grove, there's also the possibility that maybe something will come out that will sort of be exculpatory or, you know, like clear his name in, in some way. Like there's just so mm-hmm. much uncertainty with the story right now that I feel like it's sort of colored people's willingness to even have an opinion about the music, which I find mm-hmm. to be an interesting thing. And I just, I'm just wondering like how you feel about that or where you fall on that because it's not just this I mean there will be other examples of this surely as we move forward where you know there'll be an artist that is you know well known or well loved and then we'll the story will come out where it influences how we feel about the art that they've made um, I'm just curious, like where you kind of fall on that divide about how much that should come into play when we are writing about this stuff, or, or you know, I guess making aesthetic judgments on someone's art.
1: Sure, I think um, this is a, a heightened moment—the the, the Me Too um, movement—that definitely makes people want to be more uh, present to listen to alleged victims, proven victims if there's if there's such a delineation i feel like in this in this case we have to say alleged but i think what it comes down to is that this is a modern update of a debate that goes back as long as rock music itself which is how do you separate the artist from the art from the behavior the 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 music from the person you know i mean you can go back to look at jerry Lee lewis who married his teenage cousin which is an issue like that that could be considered its own extremely, and it is, problematic behavior, but it has its own um, shading of that person's artistic output when you see behavior that is definitely manipulative and concerning and, and could have elements of power um, imbalance. So when it comes to playing group, I think it comes from a good place that people are a bit hesitant to voice their opinions on it, and I think maybe voicing opinion on their music isn't the most the most important thing to do at the moment, but as someone who does voice their opinions on music for a living, I can just say that the situation around this front man that by large affects the band is not something I can divorce myself of listening to the album because it's just as much as anything my information right. for this band. I thought... And it affects how I hear it.
0: Oh, absolutely, and I think that's true for a lot of people. I think this is one of those things where you have to just let people have their own reaction to it. I mean, I, there's really no right way to regard this sort of thing. I mean, if, if the information is in your head, you can't help but have it influence how you hear something. You know, you can pretend like it won't impact it, but it, it inevitably does. You know, because we're all human beings. You know, we we can't really divorce ourselves from. I don't think we can come. I don't think. I mean, there's probably some people maybe that can compartmentalize that, but it seems like now more and more people either can't do that or they they don't want to do that. They feel like that it's not appropriate to do that. Um, it is interesting though, because like as I said, like Pitchfork did review the record, and so did the site I work for. Some places have not reviewed the record, so it does seem that at least editorially, Pitchfork made the decision that this was like something worth reviewing. Uh, mm,
1: I, I think that this was. Culturally, a moment that needed to be appraised critically. Um, I also think that, as you said earlier, this was absolutely primed to be one slash maybe in the biggest indie rock record of the year, and the discussion around it has dramatically changed its outcome.
0: Do you think they're done, career-wise? Like, do you think that, that they'll ever be able to put this behind them, or uh, is this band pretty much finished? You think?
1: I, again, I'm not such an ardent fan or follower of the band that I can't really know what's in their, what's in their heads right now looking to the future. Um, the, my perception from Jen's story is that they are still regrouping and that comes with the possibility of another album after taking some time off. I know that Halfwave, a side project created from Pine Grove, is doing very well, especially in um, the artist's separation from her band. Um, I don't know. I think that that's kind of the stage of Me Too that we're in right now. We're seeing what, what does penance really look like in this case. And I think there's so many shades of the Me Too discussion, what what is abuse and how, how severely do we take all things. And I think they all need to be taken on an individual basis. Not everything is blanket one. Uh, not everything can be treated with the same... Uh, punishment or outcome, but I think that's what's also creating such a tension around Pine Grove. Like, they will be sort of figureheads of what does contrition in the Me Too era look like to an indie rock band.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's right. I I think that's a great point. That, you know, people are maybe looking... there may be... I think there'll probably be a greater reluctance maybe to, for some people anyway, to move the line on Pine Grove, because I, th- I think there's a belief that if you're permissive of one band, well, that's just going to make it harder the next time if something happens to, you know, actually have some consequences if, if an offense occurs. Um, again, I think it's a fascinating story. I think it's an ongoing story. Um, and for what it's worth, I think it's a good record, <laughs> you know, but I understand if there's a lot of people who don't even want to listen to that record. And it sounds like you like the record too, but you are also very conflicted about it because of the cloud over the band.
1: Sure, yeah. And I can never know how much I'd like the record without the situation as a haze around it. I I can never know that. I don't
0: even
1: really bode pondering it. I just never will. This is the situation. (laughs) I I wonder, as someone who, who does like it quite a bit, like for you, if you can... There's a difference between liking the record and enjoying it. Like, can you listen to this record and enjoy it? I'm just curious.
0: I don't know. It's difficult. Again, I think it's one of those situations, especially as a critic, where you know I feel extreme reluctance. I think on some level to in- endorse this band full throatedly just because of the cloud and also. But you know, but again, I, I I come back to this thing of. You know, like another band you could compare Pine Grove to is, is Brand New, where Brand New put out a record, Science Fiction. Um, I think that was 2017, um, or maybe it was 2016. I'm, everything's so hazy for me. I can't remember dates, but it's like one of those years anyway. Um, it all
1: lumps together into a, a horrible mass. Exa-
0: right? <laughs> yes, the Trump era, it's all one big uh, lump of uh, flesh. But anyway. Um, I'm,
1: I'm updating. I, I just Googled it. Science Fiction was released last summer.
0: So how's that? Was it? Wow, man that that seems way longer ago in some ways. But anyway, that record it, comes out, and yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I wrote a very you know I I loved that record when it came out. I wrote a very positive review of it, and then all of these stories, which had kind of floated in the ether long before this, but it kind of came to fruition where all these women were talking about the band's frontman, Jess, Jesse Lacey. Uh, be, being involved in these basically sexually exploitive relationships, I think with girls who were some, in some cases like underage, um, very
1: young, and I think in some cases underage, and all fans, so there was a power dynamic at play there,
0: right? And it just created a situation where um, it was impossible, really, to listen to the record and not have that, you know, have not having those women's experiences in your head at the same time. And know for yeah. me, like that probably would have been a record that I would have ranked high on my year-end list. But then, you know, it's it's one of those situations where you're like, there's so many records that come out. Do you really need to put forward a record that has this sort of connection to it when there's something very easily you could put in its place? I mean, that was basically my thinking with that, that, you know, you don't have to listen to this album, even though it, maybe in a different context, it's a really good record. Well, you don't need to support necessarily some you know a band that has this on its record. And
1: right, you're tacitly rewarding a behavior in doing so.
0: But again, that was a situation where there were very specific allegations and information out there for us in the audience to, to know about where, you know, only if you chose to be ignorant could you set that aside. And the so. Pine Grove thing it's a little bit different again because of uh, I guess just of, of how opaque this story continues to be. And that's the thing I kind of come back to with this and why it makes it difficult but also sort of interesting to talk about as sort of a case study in, you know, larger things in the culture that are going on.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I think I think a lot of people are looking to see what, what happens next here because every step has seemed a bit undetermined.
0: Right. Well, Let's change gears here. Let's talk about a record that's as easy to like. <laughs> it doesn't have any baggage <laughs> I'm all to for it. that. Which uh, was the latest uh, Cat Power record, Wanderer, uh, which mm-hmm. came out, I think it was like the first Friday in October. And I don't know about you, but I've been a fan of Sean Marshall for a very long time. Uh, Wanderer is uh, was her first record uh, in six years. And there was an interesting backstory with this record as well, where... Uh, well, first of all, I guess I should say, quickly, for people who don't listen to Cat Power, uh, Cat Power is is the name that a singer-songwriter named Sean Marshall records under. She's been working since the mid-90s. She's had a, a really long and distinguished career. Uh, her first real breakout record was Moon Picks, which came out in 1998, considered a modern indie rock classic. My favorite album of hers, personally, is You Are Free, which came out in 2003. I think it's one of the great records. That's your favorite too. All right. See, this is Mm -hmm. why you're on the podcast. Uh, (laughs) I think one of the great records of the era. A couple years after that, she put out a record called The Greatest, uh, which is maybe her most popular record. It's uh, certainly the most sort of pop-oriented, most commercial-sounding record. Uh, I really think it's an important precursor, in a way, to the success that Adele has had. It has that sort of you know, throwback soul sound to it that Adele really took to the bank a couple of years later. Uh, but, you know, for, for for Marshall, it wasn't necessarily a comfortable guise for her. She's always been, I think, more of an underground artist, more of a fringe artist. And certainly on, on her latest record, uh, you know, she's back to making uh, really kind of stripped back records, uh, this record was self-produced, you know, it's a lot of the songs where she's just sort of backing her up herself with an acoustic guitar or piano. It has a real sort of troubadour quality to it. And the backstory I referred to before, th- there was a controversy with her longtime label, Matador Records. Apparently they told her that they wanted her to make more of a commercial sounding record. So they rejected this album and she ended up leaving the label and re- releasing the record that she made as is. And um, I really love this record, I, I I think it's actually her best album since You Are Free, and uh, to me it really kind of drove home how she is like one of the great, certainly singer-songwriters that we've had in the game in the past 20 years. Uh, she's not the most prolific artist necessarily, but the albums that she's put out have a consistently high quality. and this album just kind of feels like a career capstone album to me in a way. Not that I didn't appreciate her before, uh, but this I think really drives home uh, her status as like a legacy artist uh, right now. Mm what do you think of this record?
1: I love it. It's easily my favorite of the the three that we're on track to discuss today. I mean, I've been such a fan of Cat Power for such a long time. Um, First time I saw her was actually on the UR Free Tour. I think I was in college maybe? Yeah, it was... um, Am I that old? Yeah, it was It was back in California youth. Um, and I just, I absolutely love this record. I think that there are so many elements of what makes Sean a special um, thinker and um, just such an, such an honest presence in music that I think there are so many interesting influences that she's uh, played with over the years that all sort of cohere in this. I mean, I interviewed Sean, I think it was, talking about time running together, I think it was last year when Pitchfork did a feature on uh, the life and music of Nina Simone. And you can find a bigger Nina Simone on Marshall. And I just, I, I think to your point about her being a quality artist, someone worth waiting for, someone with just a deep, beautiful appreciation of music history. I mean, I think Sean is one of the greats in that regard. And she she takes music so, so beautifully through her own prism, you know?
0: I, what was she interview because like the interview scene with her she seems like a really charming charismatic person, but also like a liver. like she seems like someone that might be hard to sort of keep focused on whatever it is you're talking about like like what was that experience like?
1: I mean our conversation was just on she loved Nina Simone, and i cannot <laughs> I cannot emphasize how joyous a conversation that was. I mean, I absolutely loved every second of it um she's clearly someone with a lot of thoughts and and she's uh She's trying to, you know, connect connect the through lines as she's talking, which is a fascinating thing to hear. I mean, I think she's brilliant.
0: You know, when I was listening uh, to this record, it also made me think about the generation of indie artists that she was a part of, and I guess a lot of the like the female song singer songwriters that she came out like I, that I feel like are a part of her class in a way. Like I was thinking about like like Fiona Apple and um, Joanna Newsom, who I guess is like a little bit later than her she kind of came out i guess more in like the mid 2000s um but all these artists these these great artists who have like managed to have like real careers and you know kind of overcome the you know there's always that period where you're really sort of in the crosshairs of critics and they're really excited about you because you're young and you're and you're making your first couple records and then it's it can be more difficult as you get later on to keep people excited about what you're doing Mm-hmm. Certainly Sean has always been an artist who's who's been able to do that along with some of those other artists that I've mentioned. Where do you put her, I guess in terms of artists who are influential on people who are coming up now like do you do you feel like Cat Power has a legacy in that regard in terms of like influencing like younger artists who are just emerging in the last couple of years?
1: Oh yeah, definitely um I think there's it's a lot to be said. It's a great thing to sing your autonomy, to you know, sing about being feminist and sing about having your your control over your life is, is a bit of a trend not an unpleasant one that's going on in music nowadays. But it's another thing to lead by the example of having done it for over 20 years and Cat Power's career absolutely demonstrates that. So I think, yeah, when you, when you see artists who are trying to be really emotionally honest and follow their own creative impulse and have real self-guided direction over what they're doing. I think that you can really see John Marshall's imprint. I was seeing Snail Mill live, I think a week or two ago, and I definitely could see some cat power, adoration in that set.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting how uh, she duets with Lena Del Rey on the new record, on on the song mm-hmm. Woman, which is the single from the record, and it's really, like, the biggest-sounding song on the record. I mean, most of the songs are uh, much more sort of introspective and, like, not as anthemic, but that is, like, a big-sounding song. And it just made me think about how, like, when Lana Del Rey got started, of course, there was that big debate about whether she was authentic or not. You know, people were really sort of impugning her you know sort of artistic agency in a lot of ways and I I think there may have been a temptation at that time to almost pit an artist like Lana Del Rey against someone like Cat Power who which I feel like Sean has always had this sort of inherent integrity to what she's doing she's a very sort of you know autobiographical songwriter you know again there's not a lot of artifice with, with what she's doing uh so to see them come together like this I think uh uh, sort of upends that narrative, maybe for a lot of people who may want to you mm-hmm. know, sort of say that they're opposites in a lot of ways. Uh,
1: Definitely, you know, and they, that they're singing what they have in common, which is being, which is being, you know, strong women having what sounds like in their voices a, a survivors' steel spine. Is it seeing the intersection of their Venn diagram and how wide it is is a really cool thing on this record. Yeah. So we're
0: both on on. on we're both on the Cat Power train still. Definitely. Hopefully it won't be another six uh, years before another Cat Power record. But if, there, if if it is, it'll be a good record at least. So take your time, Sean Marshall. Um, so let's get to the last record I want to talk to you about. And this is another legacy artist, someone who's been in the game for a long time. And uh, that is Kurt Vile, And he put out his seventh record earlier this month. It's called Bottle It In. And um, I had the chance to talk to Kurt about this record and I've interviewed Kurt several times before he's always a very like, good guy to talk to he's not always the easiest interview in the world because he's another person who I think is very effusive uh, but he can also wander a bit you know like uh, some of the stereotypes about Kurt vile are probably true in some respects <laughs> uh, you know but um, this record, to me, is one of his best records, and it's part of a run of records that I think has been really strong. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Kurt Vile, uh, he's a writer from Philadelphia, and he first, I think, really became into people's consciousness uh, probably with "Smoke Ring for My Halo," which is a record that came out in twenty eleven, and that was the beginning of this uh, great streak that he's been on. and In, in twenty thirteen, he put on uh, "Waken on a Pretty Day,"s which uh, I think it's probably still my favorite record of his. Uh, it's certainly, I think, the most celebrated. You know, there's a lot of really long, beautiful guitar jams on that record, and it kind of established his reputation uh, as a guitar player. Uh, in 2015, he put out Believe I'm Going Down, which uh, sort of brought back more of the folk influences that he had when he was rec- recording, like, self-made uh CDRs in the in the 2000s and distributing by, them by hand in Philadelphia. Um this latest record I think feels in a way like a compendium of all those styles. There's some really great guitar songs on this record, you know, songs that extend near the 10 minute mark. Uh, and then there's also some really good uh you know, sort of straightforward singer-songwriter type songs, you know, more on the folky almost country end. Um One thing I thought a lot about when I was listening to this record is how much Kurt Vile has uh, stumped for John Prine in recent years. And I I felt like I could detect more of a John Prine influence on some of his songs, certainly in the way that he tells stories in in a lot of these songs. And, uh, you know, kind of packaging this with the Cat Power record, I'm always really impressed by artists who can put together... A catalog like this, and and engage you on their seventh or eighth record. I feel like that's probably the hardest thing there is to do, you know. And certainly with the media, you know, keeping the media interested uh, for that long. And you know, and, and with this record, you know, I mean, Kurt has done a ton of press. Uh, the reviews have been really good. Um, and I think similar to Cat Power, you can really see now that there's this generation of artists that have been influenced by what by what Kurt is doing you know you mentioned uh snail mail when we were talking about cat power I actually interviewed Lindsay Jordan a bit for my Kurt Vile feature and she talked about how smoke ring for her for my halo was like a formative record for her which I mean she probably heard that record when she was like 10 years old or something (laughs) because I think she's only 16 or I mean she might have been a little bit she's probably a little bit older than that I don't think she heard it when it was brand new but Suffices to say, you know, like I mean, she's. Well, wait, is she like eighteen now? Eighteen or nineteen?
1: God, I think she might even be seventeen. She's definitely.
0: She's really young. Um,
1: precocious, to say the least. Yeah, yeah, she's
0: really young. So, you know, Kurt Vile to her is like classic rock, basically at this point. You know? <laughs> oh God, because he's been around long enough. Um, I'm just curious, like, what do you, what you thought about this record, and like, where you think, of what do you think about Kurt Vile in general? I guess in indie rock.
1: Yeah, I mean, Kurt is someone that is sort of like a. Stevedore presence in indie rock. He's kind of like always there doing not drastic permutations, I think, of a sound that I've always enjoyed. Um Smoke Ring from My Halo is probably still my favorite record of his. I really enjoy it. Um, he always has an air of being languid and hurried, and I've always kind of appreciated his patience in music, even as he has occasionally tried my patience for <laughs> being of the same uh same general Smoky, diaphanous vibe. Um, maybe I'm a little too Type A for that times, but I do really enjoy kind of sinking into his music in the in the right situation. And and this is an album you absolutely can think in.
0: Well, I mean, you bring up a good point there because there that is, I guess, for people who aren't into Kurt Vile, there is that sort of like, okay, this is just like the same thing over and over again. It's like a mellow guy playing guitar jams. It's all kind of mid tempo you know, and I, I've i seen that. And one thing I think that's interesting about him too is that, you know, he came up as a contemporary to Adam from The War on Drugs and The War on Drugs have sort of become this, well, they're not an arena band yet, but they're sort of moving in that direction. And it's interesting kind of comparing the contrasting paths that those acts have taken where mm-hmm. The War on Drugs have become, I think, increasingly polished and like sort of like a big time rock band. And I've done a great job doing that. Whereas Kurt is more on this sort of side path, I guess more of like the Neil Young path, where sort of consciously avoiding that kind of like sort of mainstream acceptance. And I just Mm -hmm. find that divergence to be, you know, continue to be really interesting.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think um, he has some fun with what we can interpret as sort of a woozy, lazy, unchanging... Environment of his music. I mean, that he's so languid. I think works in his favor, and he knows it because then he can carry off really strange things, like like uncool slang. Like there's a song on this called "Bass Awkward." When is the long time, last time you heard someone <laughs> under like 70 say that? You know?
0: Right, right. And there's another song in here called uh, "Check Baby," where he like quotes the Rex and Effect song "Rumshaker." like the hook from that song. And I asked him about that in the interview, and he was like, oh, I didn't do that on purpose. Like, I must have heard that song on the bus in the 90s, uh-huh. like when I was a little kid. And uh, you know, I, I think I believe him. I don't, you know, I'm going to choose to believe that he didn't do that intentionally. But yeah, it's another way of him kind of like bringing up, I mean, I think he has like a very dry sense of humor that, you know, mm-hmm. where he's not really cracking a smile necessarily, but he he will drop goofiness into songs like that that at the same time have a lot of pathos in them. Like Bass Ackwards, the song you mentioned, is probably my favorite song on the record. And it's this 10 minute song where, it's almost like a meditative type type song. It's like, it's maintaining the same pace. There's guitar in it, but there's no real guitar solo. You know, he's relating the story about a person with wanderlust, you know, who keeps going to a place and then wanting to be somewhere else. And the song mm-hmm. just kind of very, you know, there's not a lot of dynamics in it. It's kind of, it feels like driving on a lonely highway late at night, you know, and you're just maintaining that pace. And to describe it like that, it sounds like it's not a very exciting song, but every time I hear it, it does lock me in to this sort of meditative journey. And I really appreciate the record for that. I feel like there's not a lot of music that is going for that kind of feeling necessarily.
1: Sure. I think music can be. Sneakily energetic. It just doesn't ask a lot of energy from us in response. Maybe.
0: <laughs> right.
1: I really love the song Mutinies on this. Actually, um, it's a bit of a anti-tech old man rant. I deeply identified with in my daily life. I can't understand anything on my computer. And right. great source of teasing around pitchfork. Um, yeah, it just has <laughs> sort of like a, a really subtle intricacy in the arrangement. It, it's still acoustic and it still feels like it could have come out of a you know particularly fruitful jam session but it feels symmetrical his sort of I don't know his sort of like growing acceptance of the new world with how the there's a bit of a slow momentum of the song I just think it all is very linear and that it doesn't happen by accident. There's a lot of craftsmanship there.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I, and that's the thing about him is that you know people always describe him as being this sort of hippie, stoner, slacker type, and yet I think he actually does have a really great work ethic. I mean, I know he's recording constantly and always collaborating with different people. Um, I just feel like he presents it in the guise of this dude who has untucked t-shirts and has looks glazed. All the time, mm-hmm. in some way. Right. Uh, but it's a, it's a great package, and uh, I feel like I will I will keep buying Kurt Vile records until I probably die, as long as he keeps <laughs> making them. So I'm appreciative uh, that there's another one. Um, we have a couple minutes here, left here, and I, I just wanted to ask if there's anything that we haven't talked about that you've written about recently that you just want to talk about briefly, and and, and let people know is out there for them to check out.
1: Oh, sure. Well, I. Finishing up the very last gasps of my review of the new Robin album, Honey. And when we were putting this podcast together, I know I suggested we talk about that. And I, I promise I know what the name of the podcast is. I know Robin is not Pop, but <laughs> I think when I talk to my friends and as someone who really loves rock music, that's one of the things we're most excited about nowadays is the return of Robin after an eight-year hiatus and what she's done with this record, which I think is so... Such a such a light touch but an extension of the whole Bot, Body Talk um, album trilogy that she released eight years ago. I think there's just so much wisdom and beauty in this album and I enjoyed the challenge of trying to discuss it. So that's on pitchfork. Uh,
0: is that album out on Friday?
1: It's it's out Friday, I believe. What's it called? Honey.
0: Honey. And what, what was her story? Like, why was there such a long gap between records? Because I remember there was a time, like, where she was, like, the queen of indie pop. Like, you like people just loved Robin. They would talk about those Body Talk records, you know, and then she was, you know, her songs were on girls. And, like, it, it seemed like, you know, she wasn't, like, a mainstream superstar, but she was, like, a cool star that everyone loved. And then there was, like, a, this long period of radio silence from her. Like, mm-hmm. is, there, is there, like, a short Robin... version of what happened to her?
1: sure uh, robin yeah she's she's definitely the the mother of quite a, a scene of admirers i think because her example is one of such uh resilience and bravery like you can you can just feel your better self listening to her music because it's it's so it's so informed by pain and still so determined to live i think and in the eight year hiatus she had i think a lot of that was for Unpleasant personal reasons, as, she, as she's been open about her long-term relationship uh, ended. Her longtime producer and friend Christian Falk, he died from cancer, and I think a lot of those eight years was just questioning where she wanted her life to go and how music fit into it. She went through very extensive therapy by her own choice and came out of that with new understandings. So. This album first uh started in its in its writing process four years ago and it's presented in the track list chronologically so you can actually hear emotional evolution oh. in truncated but in real time for in a sense.
0: That sounds awesome. That's a that's a really cool way to structure the record. So mm-hmm. definitely have to check that it- out. It's a wonderful record, yeah. My recommendation, I'm going to go in the opposite direction from Robin here. When I, Earlier this month, I spent a week in Arizona, like in the mountains of Arizona, just driving around with my wife, and an album I listened to a bunch was this record called Songs of the Plains by a guy named Coulter Wall, who's a singer-songwriter from uh, Canada. He put out his first record in 2017. It was a self-titled album. And... You know, you could definitely lump this guy under that sort of Towns Van Zant, sad sack, country-ish type troubadour umbrella. Uh, his voice is really unique. I can only uh, liken it to, like, a cartoon Basset Hound. Like, if you, if you were watching a cartoon <laughs> about a Basset Hound and, like, you imagine, like, just, like, a deep voice, that's what this guy sounds like. And okay. his self-title record that came out in 17, in I was... I, 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 couldn't really get into that one but songs of the plains um i think is a really beautiful record very spare record it's a combination of original songs as well as old sort of cowboy songs and it it has the feel of like a record that was recorded while someone was playing by a campfire like that's what it sounds like just a guy and his guitar in like a wide open space like I, i swear you can hear like coyote's in the background and, and mosquitoes and all that stuff. Not literally, but like at least those sounds are evoked on this record. And certainly the setting I was in, I think, was a big part of how much I love this record. Um, but uh, I didn't get a chance to write about this album, unfortunately. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that I mentioned it on the podcast because I think there's some listeners that would want to check that out. So again, it's called Songs of the Plains by Coulter Wall. So check that out. Maybe listen to Robin for a while, and then like when you're getting ready to go to <laughs> bed, put on the Coulter Wall record. I think you'll enjoy it. Um,
1: that sounds like a party.
0: So, Stacy, let's not make it another year and a half. I want to have you on before that, because you were a really great Absolutely. guest. So thanks oh, again thank for coming you. on, and uh, I hope you have a good uh, rest of your day.
1: Thank you. This was so fun. Great to talk with you.
0: All right. Take care. All right. That was me and Stacy, Stacy, who is now officially a friend of the pod we got to get her a jacket or something. Do we have the jackets ready to go yet? We're making, like, uh, robes. (laughs) The robes for the friends of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, So congratulations to Stacey for being a friend of the Celebration Rock pod. Uh, Hopefully we'll have her back on soon. I want to thank the man who makes it happen, Derek Madden, for producing yet another episode. Thank you, Derek. I want to thank Josh Copperman for writing our theme song. Thanks again, Josh, for writing that great music for us. And, of course, thank you to all of you, our Celebration Rock listeners, Without you, there would be no show. So thank you so much for your support. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you again next week.
1: On the Westwood One Podcast Network.